Do open your Bibles, please, to Philippians chapter 3. We are finishing the text that Dr. Kwasney opened to us last week, and you'll hear some similar themes this morning. We're picking up in Philippians chapter 3, verse 3, and let me read through verse 11. We'll be focusing most of our attention on verses 8 through 11 this morning. This is the word of the Lord through the Apostle Paul. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together. Father, how we thank you for the work of your Spirit in inspiring the word of the Lord through the prophets and the apostles. Lord, to have these unerring truths, to have this verbal inspiration of the Scriptures in all of its words, in all of its intents, in all of its thoughts, without fail, without error, leading us to both eternal life and to the abundant life here and now. Lord, grant to us, we pray, your mercy even as we open your scriptures. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to imagine that you are an English man or woman, say 35 years old, and that you have just been informed that you have become the inheritor of a grand English estate, a country estate of roughly 3,000 acres. This estate comes complete with a butler, with maids, with gardeners, with flowing streams, with horses and stables and fountains and sculpted gardens. Think Downton Abbey for those of you who have watched the show. 
you have begun to move in with extraordinary excitement. You finally get settled. But all of a sudden, something begins to happen to those that you love and to everyone on the estate. A strange sickness falls on them, and after much investigation, the stunning conclusion is that all of the groundwater within miles of your estate is contaminated by radioactive minerals. And so on this grand estate that you saw as an exceeding, abundant gift, what you once viewed as a great asset, you've come to view as so much rubbish. You've come to view it as an enemy that would harm you, a great liability, even a killer of those that you love. Well, in a similar fashion, in our text, the Apostle Paul gives us a view of his former life as he lived as a Pharisee under the constraints of the law of God, contrasted with what is now true of his life in Christ. And so this morning, I want us to look at the economics of Christianity. Paul speaks in our passage of profit and loss. And last week, Dr. Kwasny looked with great focus on the loss that Paul considered, what he gave up in terms of coming into Christ. And we'll review that briefly this morning. His economics is otherworldly. When you and I think of profit and loss, we think of ledgers, we think of accountants, we think of adding and subtracting and finding out what is left. But this is an otherworldly economics that engages the soul, it engages eternity. Everything matters with what happens to the ledger in this eternal economics. What Paul once regarded as his greatest asset, his Jewish pedigree, his position, his efforts, he now considers a loss. What he once regarded as absolutely pernicious and punished, the people of the way, the people of the gospel, he now considers the possession of greatest joy. This asset of infinite worth is the righteousness of Jesus and his union with Christ. He once did everything he could do to stamp it out. Now he sees it as his greatest asset. So this morning, let's dive into the economics of the kingdom of God. Just two vital truths that I want us to see in terms of profit and loss this morning. Here's the first and fundamental truth this morning that must be preached and must be believed in every new generation of the church. Not only in our generation as adults, but in the generation of our children and our grandchildren. It must be preached, it must be believed in every new generation that human righteousness and personal effort earns us nothing before the perfect bar of God's un mentionable holiness. There is nothing that we can gain by our efforts, nothing that we can gain by our pedigree, nothing that we can gain by what our parents have given us in religious history. 
We must repent once for all and daily of our own sense that our works can gain us the favor of God. Now, you know this from a theological principle, but day to day how subtly that error finds its way into our day-to-day living. Well, in our text, verses 4 through 7, Paul is describing how he had acquired the greatest personal pedigree. His achievements were, were second to none in his own life. But Paul comes to see that far from helping him, it became a liability to him. It became that which, had it not been corrected, had it not been solved, had the ledgers not been changed, it would have damned him forever. Paul lists seven achievements, if you will, in two categories. The things that John went over last week. And we'll look at them very quickly. The first, the inherited things. He was a Jew of the chosen race. He was saying, do you see this Old Testament and the covenant people of God? That's my people. My privileged people. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I didn't come into Judaism later in life. I came in the way the law of God prescribed. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, a particularly faithful tribe. I am an Israelite of the Israelites. He says Hebrew of Hebrews. And then to the things earned, as to the law, he was a strict observer of the law. He would put his righteousness at the standard of the law up against any other record. And he would say, I've done better. Blameless as to his faithfulness to carry out the call of the law. Zealous, I put people to death for believing in Jesus. I had them condemned and placed in prison. I had their homes taken from them. I had their homes leveled. I had their livings stolen from them. Far above others. Not just a proselyte, but I was a persecutor of the church. Look at verse 7. But whatever gain I had. In the original language, our English word gain translates a plural word. Paul is saying, whatever gains I had, whatever assets I had in the past, that I depended upon to stand before the face of God and say, I belong here. I now see those as liabilities that would condemn my soul for eternity. You see, Paul met Jesus Christ on the Damascus road. We'll turn there in just a moment. And in Christ, he met a true man of righteousness an unsullied man, a man of of such righteousness before whom Paul, who thought he had unparalleled righteousness, he became undone, and he saw himself for what he was. Faced with the righteousness of Christ, Paul came to see himself as bankrupt of any spiritual assets. The great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones of the last century wrote this. He said, man at his most privileged, his most moral, 
his most religious, his most zealous, and his most devoted, is not thereby fit to stand before God. Paul had no recourse but to add up his advantages and his achievements one by one and admit that they amounted to zero. The word gain, as I mentioned, is plural in Greek. That is, Paul says, all of his advantages on the credit side, item by item, forgetting nothing, omitting nothing, all of that that could be put to his good account was there. But when the accountant's eye travels down the list, the sum total is reckoned. And the uncompromising singular word for that column is loss, loss and not gain. After all that's been said, there is nothing but loss for his effort. Brothers and sisters, when a person is truly converted, I don't mean when a person comes to church. I don't mean when a person grows up in church. I don't mean when a person tries to do their best. I mean when a person is truly converted by the Spirit of God. We take all of our former self-righteousness and all of our self-dependence that we trusted in and we now see it as the truest of spiritual liabilities. A record that will only ensure that God will condemn us for all of our imperfections and for all of our breaking of his holy law. And we take what we once regarded as of no value, the majesty of Jesus and his righteousness, and we move that into the asset column and we say, this is my singular wealth. Let me take you back to Acts chapter 9. You need not turn there, but listen to this. Dr. Luke tells this of Paul, who is writing our passage in Philippians. But Saul, who would later be renamed, Saul was still breathing out threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, a voice said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, and in the days and weeks following, we don't know exactly when he was converted, but we know that he was in fact converted. He was confronted by the majesty of Jesus Christ, and he was undone. And in like fashion, you and I, every single one of us here, must know the profoundly personal impact of the righteous King of Kings, Jesus, unmasking us of our own righteousness 
and showing us that we have nothing and that the emperor has no clothes. When Paul met Christ, it was as if there were only two people who existed. And the righteous Pharisee became helpless before the Son of God. And Christ came to Paul and called him out of his darkness, out of his ignorance, and loved him and gave himself to Paul and washed him of his filthy unrighteousness and gave him every possession that Jesus had. That's what it means in simplicity to be a Christian. Nothing else. And so in our text back in Philippians 3, Paul is describing his life in the flesh that is outside of knowing Christ. Paul in his fleshly achievements had outpaced everyone else. And I ask you, do you ever wonder, have I outpaced so and so? Am I a better person than that person? Do I do more in the kingdom of God than they do? Have I avoided immoralities that they have fallen into? Is that perhaps where some of us are trusting? And Paul is saying that it will kill you eternally. Unless you see that Jesus has come to unmask that and wash that away and give you the only kind of righteousness that can make you stand in the presence of God and say, I belong here. The theme of our passage really is the soul's great confidence. What is it that truly makes a person able to stand in the presence of God? And the answer is nothing but Jesus. The song, nothing but Jesus for me. So I want to ask you this morning, have you taken everything that you might ever have depended upon, everything that you have ever wondered, would this give me some credit before the face of God, and have you moved that into the loss column where it belongs? And by a heart of simple childlike faith, you have taken all that is Jesus's and all that is His. And you have moved that into the asset column and you have said, this is my only hope now and forever. That's what it means to be a believer. To put another way, has Jesus Christ met you? Has he stripped you? Has he cleansed you? Has he credited to you a righteousness that a thousand lifetimes could never earn? Every new generation of the church, every new generation of culture needs to hear the simplicity of that challenge. But yet that's not where Paul ends, thankfully. In the economics of the kingdom of God, there's a th second thing that we must learn this morning. 
that having only liabilities of our own, Paul sets before us the beauty that Christ alone is our true wealth. And then he shows us what that wealth is. In Christ is our every asset. In him resides our all and only comfort. Read it with me. Verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. There is Paul's surpassing wealth, his inestimable gain. Paul is describing his conversion, his complete transformation, where all that he had depended upon now is loss, and that which he had seen as foolishness was now all his gain. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5. It's a well-known verse to us in the church. Paul says, If anyone or any man, quite literally, be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Now here's how Paul literally writes it. If any man be in Christ, new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It doesn't say he is a new creation. That's understood in the original language, but it's left out on purpose for emphasis. If any man be in Christ, new creation, Paul shouts. Brand new. The old is gone. The new has come. That which was death is gone. This is now life. New creation. The great missionary John G. Patton, who was a missionary in the New Hebrides with a very particular, particularly difficult tribe of people, was working on his translation of the New Testament. He could not come up with a local word for the idea of faith. And one of the people in the village came to him in a great season of trouble needing help and came to John Patton and said, please may I come and lean heavily upon you. That was his own vernacular. And Patton finally understood it. He said, this is the language that I can use. That faith is leaning entirely upon Christ, not laboring but secession of labor. Not doing but ceasing to do. Simply leaning the entire weight of our soul upon Christ and finding in Him a righteousness that could never be ours by effort. Well, I want you to look with me at the beautiful six magnificent assets that Paul speaks of when he speaks of this incalculable wealth that is ours in verses 8 through 11. Let's go through them. We'll do it very quickly. The first asset, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Verse 8. Oh, the magnificent worth of knowing and being known by the Father's beloved Son. Hear it again. 
the worth of being known and knowing God through his beloved Son. In Christ are found all of the treasures of God. And being in Christ, we come to know the breadth and the height and the length and the depth of the love of God in Christ. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. In other words, Paul says to know Christ in the asset column far outweighs whatever else we might have. The second asset that Paul speaks of, the surpassing worth of being found in Christ, verse 9, that Christ is Paul's permanent address. So we can say, as you hear in the book of Acts and read of Paul throughout the New Testament, Paul might be in Rome, he might be in Philippi, he might be in Jerusalem, he might be healthy, he might be in jail, he might be burdened by the cares of the churches, he might be in innumerable numbers of places. But Paul's address is Christ. That's where Paul camps. That's where Paul pitches his tent. He has no other address. He would be found in Jesus. There's actually an eschatological sense to that, meaning an end time sense to that. Paul wants the divine scrutiny that he will face when Jesus returns or when he dies and sees the Lord. The divine scrutiny that he faces, he wants to be found in Jesus and nowhere else to face that divine scrutiny. Worthy of being found in Christ, of knowing Christ. The third asset, the righteousness from God that depends upon faith. Verse 9, Paul understands now that on the cross two principal things happened that Jesus received all of my unrighteousness and that I have received all of his righteousness. That my unrighteousness was credited to Jesus and his righteousness is credited to me. How wealthy are you, dear believer? You have the wealth of the majesty an acceptance of Jesus Christ before the face of the Father. A righteousness that is obtained simply by saying, Yes, Lord, you have done this, and I cannot. A fourth asset, knowing the power of his resurrection, verse 10. The same divine power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, Paul tells us in Romans 6 and 7, is the very same power, the power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in you to change you from one degree of glory into another, to prepare you from the moment of your conversion to the moment that you hit heaven. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that is at work in you. A fifth asset, the sharing of his sufferings in death to ourselves, verse 10. This is our humble identifying with Jesus in his humiliation and suffering for us. This is where we come to know Christ in his afflictions, where we take on the death of Christ, where we are used to speaking of Jesus identifying with us, but this is where we identify with Jesus in his sufferings. 
in his afflictions, we take on death and suffering, becoming like him in his death. The fellowship of his sufferings, quite literally. And then the final asset that Paul speaks of is the incalculable benefit of attaining our resurrection from the dead. You know, when a believer dies, we, we sometimes rather naively think that that believer now has everything that there is to be had in the Christian life. And you may even hear a pastor, and you've probably heard me say that when we're not thinking as precisely as we might, we, we might tend to say they enjoy all of the benefits of God. And in, in a way, that's true, but there is one fundamental thing that is yet to come. That is the glory of the resurrection. The reuniting of a perfected soul and a perfected body and living in the new heavens and the new earth in that glorious state where we are only able not to sin forever before the face of God. What an infinite gain Paul speaks of. What an immeasurable wealth is already ours. Well, I want to close by setting what Paul has done here in the language of Jesus. In Matthew 13, we have the parable of the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. Listen to them. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. When you are convinced that having Jesus Christ is the single great treasure of life, you will let nothing stand in the way of having that treasure and of continuing to possess that treasure at all cost. That's Jesus' version of the wonder, simplicity, and extraordinary gift of the gospel. Jesus is teaching here what Paul is teaching in Philippians, that the believer devotes the whole of his or her life to Christ, believing that it is entirely worthwhile to give up everything that we might have this pearl and this treasure. This morning I ask you, do you believe that Jesus Christ and his gospel of grace is of such value that you will leave here and you will pursue that with all of your heart. Let's pray together. Father, this is profit. This is gain in the economy of the kingdom of God. Jesus, we ask you this morning that you would make yourself our only treasure. And though we might still value 
highly and beautifully wonderful gifts that you give us in this life, that we would never treasure anything, nor anyone, as we treasure you. Spirit of the Lord, emblazon this beauty of Jesus upon our souls. We ask you, we beg you, we seek, we knock that you might give. We pray for his honor. 